0: Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book. But also, the podcasts stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. (laughs) Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Brian McCullough. Today, we continue my efforts to preserve the history of the ISP industry, Internet Service Providers. These days, it feels like the Internet is simply all around us all the time, but there are amazing entrepreneurial stories about how that crucial infrastructure was laid. Today, we talk to Sonic founder Dane Jasper, who can not only give us the history of the industry, because he's been there from the very beginning, but the present-day situation as well, as Sonic is still a thriving and important independent ISP. Please enjoy this conversation with Dane Jasper. Dane Jasper, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me
0: well i this is kind of my generic first question, but I feel like it's super uh relevant to this conversation um and that would be what was your first experience online uh or with the internet um especially because that's the business that you eventually got into but do you remember your your first uh
1: time going online Well as a kid um, you know it was dial up bulletin board systems mm-hmm. pre internet. And so kind of early memories were, you know, using an Apple IIgs to dial up to local, you know, single line bulletin board systems and, you know, busy signals and busy signals. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I used to have like a manual dial modem. You'd dial and then flip the switch over and, you know, monitor the thing synchronizing and then connect it over to data. So that all sort of predates the Internet. And then um, you know the beginning, and that sort of you know went through from those sort of isolated systems that had no interconnection, to beginning to participate in systems that were part of networks like FidoNet, and then later you know UUCP and and um, uh, and email, um, and then uh, when I went to uh, the centers of junior college, uh, the centers of JC was the uh, First community college in California to get an internet connection, and uh, when I uh, joined the university, uh, I really enjoyed work more than school, and uh, and I had actually dropped out of high school when I was 16 and worked for a couple of years, and then uh, worked for an online service and discovered that's what I like doing, and I went back to the JC to uh, learn computer science, and so one of the first things I did was get a job in one of the labs there, and uh, and get exposed to uh, you know the, the internet um, in in the uh, college environment. So you you said that this was Santa
0: Rosa J C was the one of the first or maybe the first uh, in California to hook up for for the students. You mean not for research purposes?
1: Well, to to my understanding, it was the first community college in the state of California to get an internet connection, and the Santa Rosa J C. Um, led a consortium of community colleges, and they had a a set of software developers who were staff at the college who wrote the software that was used for student records uh, and for um, some of the human resources and personnel activities. And so because the Santa Rosa JC wrote this software, and this was, you know, mainframes and COBOL and, you know, raised floor data center and, a, a, you know, a number of software developers that wrote this thing because this college was sort of the nexus of this, uh, platform that so many used. It was the first to, uh, sort of have the justification for getting an internet connection, which was, um, and remember this is a, a, a huge college. The enrollment was, Oh, about 26,000 students, um, as I recall, there were 800 uh, PCs on campus that were, you know, staff and faculty computers and lab computers, and the internet connection that the campus got was a 56 kilobit connection.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, you 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 get a job essentially building this out, like like getting the the university wired.
1: Well, my first job was in one of the labs, so I was you know someone who would help somebody with you know their computer homework, what they were working on, whether that was, you know, an application, you know, people were learning WordPerfect and whatnot. Uh, and, um, uh, and then I moved to a position in the computing services department. And so I was a student employee and um, our job, and there was a number of students, uh, three or four of us, and, uh, and then, you know, staff who, who, who ran this as well. And our job was to support the campus desktops and laptops. So we were a repair center, so to speak, for, um, you know, companies like HP and Apple that the campus bought uh, equipment from. So we would do sort of in-house warranty repair. And also, uh, our job was to hook up the 800 and some campus computers to this new internet connection. And uh, so that meant crawling around under desks and, uh, you know, connecting, uh, you know thin net Uh, coaxial cables and terminating cable and installing Ethernet cards into, uh, you know, like Windows 3.0 computers, um, loading drivers, uh, trying to make all that stuff work. And um, so, you know, the initial, the the primary job was, um, you know, managing the distribution of that internet connection and you know, this is a campus, so it's a it's a widespread environment. So it was the complexity of connecting from building to building, and deployment of you know this is pre switches, so it was hubs, and it was uh, you know most of it was coaxial, and then uh, later Ethernet, and uh, so that was kind of um, you know early uh, work experience.
0: And and what year are we talking about? What year or years?
1: So this was probably 1991. And um, uh, my co-founder, Scott Doty, was also uh, a student uh, employee at the time. And uh, and so co-founder of Sonic, um, and Scott uh, served as our chief technical officer for a number of years. So he and I were both in, uh, in that uh, campus environment at the same time, sort of from maybe 1991 through 1994.
0: Well, so I, I bring that up because that's pretty much... Pre the the web uh, going mainstream, so the internet that you're setting up at first is like you know s- you know straight for the email, file sharing, that sort of thing. And like I think I read that you even uh, might have set up one of the first Gopher servers in California.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. So I mean, this is you know this is pre-web, and um, so the principal applications were you know Telnet, you know text based. You know, connecting from one server to another. Um, You know, file transfer protocol, downloading files from uh, from uh, remote servers. um, Internet relay chat. I'll I'll come back to that because IRC was sort of a nexus for uh, for a a critical moment Mm. for us. Um, And uh, Gopher. uh, And Gopher was a text-based, early. of menuing linking and document storage so you'd see a menu items 1 through 10 you'd pick item 2 because that was where you wanted to go that might link to another server that had a menu and items 1 through 5 and item number five might be a text file <laughs> that you were looking for it's a little bit like the web right hyperlinks from one server to another and uh, so gopher was a little web like all text but it was a a linking platform from you know within a file structure and a menuing structure on one server that could then link to other servers, and uh, and so Gopher was one of the uh, things that was uh, a little bit web like pre web,
0: and I might be screwing up the timeline here, but aren't you guys also um, setting up and running your systems on Linux really early on too?
1: Yeah, so. I mentioned Scott Doty previously, and, and Scott um, was uh, another student employee uh, in the Computing Services Department at the Centers of JC, and, uh, and Scott was a radioman in the Coast Guard, so he was uh, on the GI Bill. And uh, there was a semester when uh, Scott didn't want to take any classes, and uh, in order to get your GI Bill funding. Uh, you had to take a certain number of units of classes in order to be a, you know, reasonably full-time student in order to get your government funding, and uh, and Scott um, did a project, a project proposal for, uh, I think they called it special studies in computer science, and these sort of special studies frameworks, you would propose a project to a department. You'd say we, we'd like, I'd like to do this thing. And uh, and here's how this will be equivalent to taking a class. And um, so when you're a college student at, at the junior college, there's also a work experience opportunity. So you can take a work experience class. You get some units for working. And so Scott got, I think, four units for being employed in the computing services department and three units for taking a, uh, a special studies in computer science project. That was enough units to get, you know, continue to get his GI Bill funding for that semester. And the project was to use this new operating system called Linux, uh, which I think it was like .92C was the version at the time. <laughs> you know, Linux had gotten a uh, an Ethernet driver, its first driver for an Ethernet card, the Western Digital 8003 card, two weeks prior. And uh, and he said, I would like to use this new operating system called Linux uh, to set up a dial-up Linux host that students can use to access this amazing 56 kilobit internet connection and all these resources and, and in the process not go to class for a semester.
0: That so then it, it, is that what you guys also take and, and and I'm I am jumping ahead real quick. Do you do you take that basic system when you start um, Sonic or did you have to rewrite that sort of
1: stuff? Well, so Sonic was a um, a, a a reimplementation. Hmm. So so Scott and I and uh, another student employee named Dustin Molo. Um, and the the staff who supervised us all kind of were involved in this process at at one level or another. And uh, and we used a a spare. We had an HP um, uh, 386 that was um, uh, a spare, it would have been a Novell NetWare server for one of the departments, but it was the cold spare, the spare hardware. Uh, We had a set of spare modems that would have been connected to the campus mainframe if they had a failure of one of the modems. And we borrowed the spare equipment, and uh, I remember the approval for the project, uh, and he got, you know, approval from both the computing services department that was going to support it, from uh, the computer science department that, that had the faculty who were going to supervise this project, and it said, you know, the project is contingent on the availability of spare hardware, That's and nice. if one of the departments has a server failure, then you're going to lose your hardware, and you'll have to then sort that out from there. And... Um, so, uh, so Scott really drove this, and uh, the rest of us who, you know, had been playing around on the internet and enjoying it, um, assisted him. And uh, so you mentioned Gopher previously. You know, one of the things I did was set up the campus Gopher server on top of that platform. And uh, and this was uh, the campus mainframe was uh, was Garfield. Uh, the campus library system, the, the mainframe that ran the library catalogs, was ODI. And um, and this little Linux box that we set up with, I think about eight phone lines and you know 2400 baud modems that students could dial into, was called Nermal, uh, the little the little kitten right. in the uh, in the That's Garfield uh, comic. And um, so so jumping ahead so to speak, um, we'd been operating the system for um, some period of time, maybe it was nine months or so. And uh, you know maybe a year, so this would have been 1993, perhaps early 1994. And we got a phone call from another college, and uh, as I recall, it was a four-year university, and they called up the you know junior college, and uh, and they they said one of your students is. Uh, cussing in internet relay chat, <laughs> and we would like you to call them and tell them to stop. Uh, one of your junior college students is being rude on the internet, and that <laughs> is inappropriate, and uh, and so you should give them a call. And we, we logged into IRC, and, and, uh, and we uh, went into the channel this, this kid was in, and his name is Max Watson. And, uh, you know, he's in, you know, some IRC channel. You know, dropping f-bombs, and uh, and just being what we would think of today as a troll, um, and and you know just behaving really badly. And uh, so we trot down the hall and sort of up the stairs to the area where this raised-floor data center is. And um, uh, the programmer who was uh, our liaison with the system, his name is John Mercer, and we go into John's office. He's this you know, COBOL programmer, sort of classic uh, developer. He mean, John, we have to call this kid and tell him to stop cussing on the Internet. Uh, can you look up his student record and give us his telephone number? And uh, so we look up Max Watson. No student record. Couldn't find him. And we tried a few different variations of the name and um, couldn't find this kid in the student records. And uh, the way that this platform worked, so you had this data center where all the campus uh, infrastructure is, and this includes student records, right? This is where everybody's grades are. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure you've seen War Games and, you know, the idea of hacking uh, the student records and giving yourself an A.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they didn't trust... Scott and I, um, with direct access to student records. And what this was, was a serial line, you know, a a flat satin cable that ran up into the, you know, under the floor of the data center, up into the ceiling above, down the hall, to this old electronics lab that Scott and I worked in, to this Linux box that was sitting on the, the workbench there. And the protocol was, and John Mercer wrote the software on the mainframe side. We would send to John a social security number and a birth date. This is before you know identity theft, and people cared a lot about social security numbers. Your social security number was your student registration. And uh, so when a student wanted access, they would log into the system as new. That would spawn a little program that that Scott wrote that would say, "What is your name?" What is your social security number? What is your birth date? And uh, and it would assign a login and a password for the Linux box. And then it would send the information over the serial line to the campus mainframe. Now, we are kind of novice programmers back then, and um, matching names was kind of hard. And uh, so we would send over the social security number and the birth date. John Mercer would compare that to the student records, and if that was a registered student in the current semester, he'd squirt back a one, a yes at us, and if not, a zero. And we never sent the name over the campus mainframe. So we trotted back to our office, and and you know there was literally a flat file of these social security numbers, dates, names. And we looked this up. We go back to John's office. Here's the social security number that goes with it. And he looks the social security number up, and it was a um, an older woman, I think her name was Mildred, a 78-year-old woman who was registered for aquatic aerobics at the local Santa Rosa JC. Mm. And clearly this older woman was not acting like a teenager in Internet Relay Chat and trolling people. And uh, so this was a kind of an early form of identity theft. And um, so we asked around... And the, the the campus really operated on student labor. They, they, by law, they could pay below minimum wage. And a lot of students would work in um, uh, in different departments, including registration. So when what we learned was that when an older person would go in and register for a class that was not computer-related, there was someone in registration who was going, oh, this is an older person registering for... Um, you know, some sort of an art class or a, a PE class, and uh, and this student employee with uh, less scruples than we had would literally jot down the social security number and the birth date on a po- on a yellow post-it note as during the process of registering this person for their classes. And this individual had a a younger brother who was a student at the Santa Rosa High School next door. And they were selling these post-it notes that could be turned into a, a semester, six months of completely free, unfettered access to the Internet. They were selling these at the high school next door for $25. And that was the kind of light bulb moment for me. And I said to Scott, like, people are stealing this from us. (laughs) And, you know, this is an era when people were dialing up to CompuServe and dialing up to AOL, and they were paying $20 a month. And you may remember they would send floppy disks and CDs and it would say. Well, I was going to
0: say, I'm going to interrupt. This is not $20 a month. They were still charging by the hour.
1: Well exactly. So you'd get the CD and it would say 720 free hours, right? In your first month and you'd sign up, you'd pay $20 a month plus a dollar an hour. And that was sort of the going rate for online services back then. And and the reason for that was that they had to have a local phone number in your area and they had to trunk that back to somewhere else. And you know, this was expensive in in that era. And uh, so the idea that you could give a 15-year-old 25 bucks for a post-it note that was the stolen identity of a junior college student and get uh, six months of free internet, allowed them to go online to the, you know, directly connected, a a Linux or Unix shell environment um, that allowed direct access to, you know, FTP and IRC and Gopher and, and, and Telnet and email, all those components and not pay twenty dollars a month plus a dollar an hour, it was really a, a valuable commodity. And at that moment, I said, like Scott, we know how to do this, and this Linux platform's been working great. you know this is uh you know a Linux server and some modems and a fifty six k connection, and we should go replicate this uh, at my mom's house <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, you know sort of this is like the back uh you know, the garage startup story, the back room, um, you know, let's just do the same thing and, uh, and charge for access. And we think that there's a business there.
0: Well, where did you though? Uh, well, I'm, maybe I'm getting ahead again. Um, so if, if I understand correctly, like you literally, you know, get a couple phone lines set up for your mom's house, buy some modems and things like that. But where, where did you think you would identify customers aside from going back to the high school? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, we um, uh, we got permission from the Sanders of JC uh, to notify the students who were users of that platform that this commercial option was available. And, uh, and I remember we, we had to sort of write a letter to the campus leadership and say, you know, we, we want to send an email to everyone uh, or put in a message of the day, you know, a, a text that will display when you log in that says, there's this new commercial service that's very similar to this, but, you know, costs $12 a month. And, uh, you know, tell your friends about it. And uh, I think they probably gave us permission because they recognized the, the problem with uh, non-students having access and, and that this was a, a way to help resolve that. But um, so, A, we notified uh, the, the users of the, of the system that we were already operating. And then second, we ran classified ads in the newspaper. And, uh, you know, this was a time when, when that was still a thing. I, ironically, the Internet obviously has killed that, um, and uh, so we ran classified ads in the paper, you know, dial-up internet access, you know, and at the beginning uh, it was just text shell-based access, and then uh, shortly thereafter we launched um, a point-to-point protocol and serial line IP, and those protocols allowed us to deliver IP, um, and that opened the door then to folks accessing uh, direct uh, directly resources like web servers uh, and running a web browser.
0: So I think that you you were able to run it out of your the back room at your mom's place for a while, but then PacBell wouldn't sell more than, I think, 17 phone lines to a residence or something like that?
1: Yeah, well, it was interesting because I... Um, uh, You know, I was running this while I was a student, while I was working uh, on the campus. I was was working another job as well at the time. And um, so this was an evening time thing. I would get home each night from work after school, and I would go to the local uh, post office. And we had a P.O. box. People would mail in a check. They would pay $50 one time, uh, sort of sign-up fee or set-up fee. That bought basically one-tenth of a modem, a phone line, and a terminal server port that we plugged it into. And they would pay $12 a month, and they'd pay three months at a time. So uh, we'd get a check for $86, three months of service and a connection fee. And each day I would go to the P.O. box at the end of uh, the workday. I would open up the P.O. box. There'd be you know, three or four or five of these checks in there. I'd walk across to Kinko's and photocopy the checks. I'd write up a deposit slip. I'd put them in the bank. I'd go home, and I would call these folks and say, okay, well, let me help you get your modem set up, set up your computer. Um, A lot of folks back then didn't have modems, um, so I'd make house calls, go out and help folks install a modem, get it up and running. And um, we, we reached a point where... You know, we had, like you said, I think 17 phone lines in the house, which isn't really typical. And remember, this is a time when people were getting second phone lines for either fax or a modem. Online services were really uh, beginning to grow. People were dialing into those online services and, and early internet services. And so lots and lots of households were getting a second phone line. Well, we were getting, you know, a 17th and this is growing so quickly that i placed an order for 8 more phone lines at a time and uh, so i got home from uh, work one day and there's a you know message on the machine and it was the the local uh, BIC engineer for pacific bell and he was saying you know hey i've got this order here for 8 phone lines and you know we we uh, we don't have the capacity um, on your street to deliver these. So, so give me a call and we'll, we'll talk about it. And, uh, so I was panicking. And, uh, so the first call I made was to the California public utilities commission. And, you know, this is like, you know, eight o'clock in the evening, you know, on a, on a Thursday or something, and obviously nobody's there. And, uh, you know, I get a, um, uh, I get a an answering machine or something, and I leave a message with the Public Utilities Commission. And I said, you know, I I just want to order phone lines. Don't they have to sell me phone lines uh, at this at this at this house? And uh, um, and then I hung up the phone and and I called back the engineer at Pacific Bell, and I said, all right, I'm. Um, Uh, I really need these eight phone lines, and I've called the Public Utilities Commission to find out what my rights and responsibilities are, and, uh, you know, please call me back. And uh, the next day, the Public Utilities Commission staff called me, and and they said, well, everyone has a right to a phone line. There is a universal service obligation. Um, In other words, if your neighbor has a phone line, you should be able to get one, too. And you should be paying the same rate as everyone else. And uh, this is, you know, a carrier of last resort concept, an obligation. And I said, well, what about, <laughs> you know, 20-some phone lines? And, uh, and they said, no, no, they, they really only have to sell you one. And um, so I was disappointed and, you know, went, went to school and went to work and came home and and uh, found a message on the uh, the answering machine from the, the engineer at Pacific Bell. And he said, all right, we've sorted it out, and we've got a way to deliver these lines for you. Um, but after this, you can't have any more. And by the way, you know, what did the Public Utilities Commission say? And I called him back and spoke with him on the phone. I said, well, they told me I was out of luck. And what had happened was you know, you think about a street of homes, you know, block after block after block of homes. And I had consumed 17 phone lines kind of in the middle of this street uh, from, you know, one end to the other. And there were homes further past mine who were trying to order modem lines. And I had used up all of the copper wires that went that far. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this engineer said, well, you know, we're going to run a, new line, uh, as far as your mom's house. And we're going to migrate all your lines over to that. Um, but, uh, I'm only doing that because I can't take these lines away from you. And you've used up so much capacity that we can't serve the homes beyond you. And everybody wants a second phone line now. And, uh, so he said, look, you got to move to a commercial location. And, uh, so these eight phone lines bought us a couple months uh, of growth and uh and allowed us some time to find uh, an office building downtown that you know it seemed really well equipped it had 300 we thought 300 phone lines into it and you know we said well here's the offices we're considering and he said well choose that one that one's got the most phone lines
0: so i'm assuming that at that point if it hadn't already occurred to you before you're like this is the moment where we have a real business here
1: yeah it was interesting because you know, I had, um, uh, like I said, I, I quit high school uh, before finishing when I was 16 and, uh, you know, went and worked and uh, really found my passion in online services, went back to the JC, was really uh, succeeding and, and doing well in school and taking lots of units and started the business um, in um, 1994, so it'll be, it'll be 25 years in a, in a couple months here. And so I look at my transcripts from sort of 1994 I'm taking 21 units I was on the swim team I was on you know the dean's list doing really well and then the next semester it's like 18 units and you know getting some Bs and the next semester you know I'm taking 12 units and getting you know withdrawing from classes and so there's this like decline in my academics as uh, as the business really started to grow and um, you know, fundamentally I gotta say, you know, we were in the right place at the right time. You know, the internet was taking off. People were getting online. And uh so there was a lot of good luck in that.
0: Yeah, I've used the phrase many times on here before, like if there's a tidal wave of history, all you gotta do is stand in front of it sometimes <laughs> and, and try to write yeah, it and if, don't get wiped yeah, out. Yeah, figure it.
1: out how to write it instead of getting drowned. Um and uh you know, there, there's been, you know, a whole sequence of, of great people and great decisions uh, and and good strategy that have kept us and sustained us through those years. And, and, you know, that is a time, if you think of the mid-90s, that was really the time of the rise of dial-up Internet and ISPs. And this is before, you know, cable Internet mm-hmm. uh, existed as a technology. Uh, it's it's before the telephone companies had gotten into the business of providing DSL and and their own retail services. So if you were on the internet, you were online with an independent commercial ISP, and, and that might have been you know, by way of CompuServe or AOL, who had sort of portals through to the internet, or an independent ISP that was serving your region or community. And... Um, there used to be a, a book of um, like a directory published every year. The Boardwatch magazine published this book of it was like a phone book for ISPs. And there were thousands, like literally thousands, of internet providers. And you'd look up your state and your area code. You'd find one with a local number. Uh, you'd dial into that number. You'd, you'd kind of find out what they offered. And uh, and that was um, really an interesting era. Um, of innovation and, uh, and and businesses growing and all founded on, and we talk a lot today about common carriage and net neutrality and sort of the important uh, telecommunications regulation concepts. Well, that capability to deliver dial-up internet was founded in the fact that phone lines were the technology that was necessary and telephone lines were common carriage. They were available to every business at a, Tariff rate on an equal basis, and uh, you know that was that was the key ingredient. Well,
0: aside from the you know galaxy of of mom and pop, as it were, ISPs um, that you're probably competing with locally, um, as the '90s evolve, eventually you know the the thing that is the training wheels for a lot of Americans for the internet is AOL. So, what about competing with the likes of AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy? in terms of um, becoming people's uh, ISPs versus doing something like AOL?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because, you know, you think about today's carriers, Um, you know, largest broadband provider in America is NBC, Universal, Comcast, right? And, um, you know, uh, AT&T, DirecTV, Time Warner. What you see today is this creation of, access behemoths who are also deeply integrated with content owners of content and content distribution well back then you had the same sort of scenario with America Online and CompuServe and, and um, these portals that were rich with content and advertising and chat rooms and their own kind of walled garden of, of siloed resources on the one hand, right, at $20 a month and a dollar an hour, and then on the other side, you had the rise of ISPs and just the Internet. And what happened was AOL users stopped looking at AOL resources, and they just used it to get to all the wonderful things that were on the open Internet. And uh, so the rise of the Internet and its um, sort of generic ubiquity and broad scope of global resources made... It possible for a mom and pop operator who was just providing a uh, a dumb pipe who didn't own or curate uh, content or run chat rooms and so on instead could just provide a connection to this wonderful internet thing and um, and consumers actually wanted that they didn't want to fuss around with all the content that was owned by their provider
0: the um we we mentioned this before. Um, that that there was a time when AOL and and CompuServe and all of them are are charging by the hour, and as I understand it, you know one of the things that made them go to unlimited wa- were the independent ISPs that were just like you know what, uh, just pay us a, a, a flat fee per month and, and you can you can use it all you want, right? Because all you 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 just want the open internet, so we don't need all these bells and whistles. Um, so was that also uh, a strategy that, that was commonly employed to, to compete with the bigger players?
1: Yes, and you know the, lo- the local ISPs had the advantage of having um, local phone lines. So you think of America Online. They have a few data centers where all the modems are across the country. They have to trunk the, the analog voice calls to those points. They have to pay intermediate carriers to do that. The local ISPs bring a big internet pipe to town, and then they buy local phone lines. They receive local calls and they pay nothing per minute. So the shift in the business model and the the, 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 the key innovation platforms. I mean, Linux is one. The, the rise of uh, open, free open source operating systems that allowed for delivery of these services. You know, services that were critical like email, uh, web hosting. Uh, so Linux and and um, Uh, Free open source software was one critical component. Um, And uh, consumers desired just to get to the Internet. The the rise of the web and the ease of use of the web was another. They didn't want CompuServe. They wanted the web. Uh, And then the last was local phone lines allowed a local service provider to eliminate the toll per minute that they might pay for an intermediate carrier, and just receive local phone calls and connect those directly to the internet. And uh, so, I think a lot of um, ISPs ended up, you know, selling services, and you know they would perhaps cap the total number of hours people would use, um, and uh, and just charge a monthly fee, kind of, um, you know, under twenty dollars a month. And our price point. Um, We've always been an aggressive price leader and and a disruptive carrier from that perspective. Our launch price point was $12 per month for um, what became unlimited dial-up internet. And What we learned was that we needed one phone line for about every 10 users, and uh, they would sort of dial up prime time, kind of one out of 10 uh, moments. And uh, and that drove the economics of the entire business model was what that utilization was.
0: Well, the you know this is alighting a bunch of stuff, but um, you know the AOL famously does not uh, survive uh, for uh, forever, um, and because they essentially bungle the transition to the broadband era. And even though they try, that's part of what buying Time Warner is. It gets you a, a, a cable company, essentially, and the telcos are getting into the business. So how how does Sonic, um, you know, survive this transition from essentially the copper wire uh, infrastructure-based business to the broadband business that evolves into all these different technologies?
1: Yeah, it's, it is really interesting to look at the history of this because... You look at you know, online services like AOL that provided um, value that was only accessible by subscribing to their service, being disrupted by dial-up internet providers who had local phone lines and just provided access to the internet. And then um, as we move into the broadband era, cable companies who own the wires that go to the house and phone companies who control twisted pair lines that go into the house, delivering, you know, DSL and, um, you know, data over cable. And uh, so, you know, Internet providers disrupted um, online service providers like AOL. And then um, infrastructure owners like cable and telco over time disrupted ISPs. And so you look at the thousands of ISPs that were published in that book of um uh, uh, you know, book of um, service providers by Boardwatch magazine, and the vast, vast majority of them are gone. The challenge for us and and the challenge that we've managed to navigate uh, has been the evolution from dial-up to DSL using the incumbents' uh, equipment um, to being a telephone company ourselves, uh, a regulated public utility, to engaging in construction and deployment of fiber optic networks in the last mile. And so each of those, uh, you know, over 25 years has been an era of learning new skills and capabilities, employing uh, people who can help us learn how to do this and, and stretching the capabilities of our organization and our team. And each of them is grounded in technological changes, marketplace, uh, changes and regulatory changes. So, you know, the beginning of dial-up is about learning how to run modems and phone lines and terminal servers and and Linux and you know operating systems that allow you to deliver the authentication and DNS and all the ancillary underlying services that are necessary. As DSL arrived, so around 1998. Incumbent telephone companies began to deploy DSL access multiplexers, or DSLAMs, in telecom central offices, and, and they were sort of driven to do so by the competitive pressures from competitive local exchange carriers, companies like Covad and Northpoint and New Edge and Rhythms. These companies were leveraging the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which I'll come back to. Um, to deploy DSLAMs, and the the telephone companies really needed to do the same in order to deliver uh, broadband Internet access. But telephone companies then were not allowed to provide retail access to the Internet. They could provide telecommunications services, common carriage, a connection from A to to B uh, where the traffic was carried, and so internet service providers of that era would buy an aggregation circuit, a large data circuit from the incumbent carrier, and then would buy the DSL tail, the loop to the home, that would interconnect to the incumbent's DSL access multiplexer and uh, and And we saw a lot of companies you know interconnecting with lots of. Uh, Incumbent carriers all across the country. And so you think about companies like um, uh, Earthlink, um, mm-hmm. who provided national DSL access, companies like Net Zero. Um, and uh, so this was really for us kind of the second big era. And that was uh, learning how to run large ATM, uh, asynchronous transfer mode switches. So this was a packet switching telecommunications technology that will allow us to differentiate virtual circuits that connected to the households and businesses of thousands of subscribers. Each virtual circuit had a sort of header identifier and you would overlay on top of that IP and they would get an IP address and you would carry their traffic to and from. And sort of that kind of began in, in 1998 and, uh, and Sonic, had grown to a pretty substantial scale in dial-up access. Uh, Those 300 phone lines that were in that building turned out to serve every business down the block and we used them all up and had to put in another 1,200 phone lines uh, into that building. And uh, so we had a lot of dial-up customers. And uh, so we were able to interconnect with then Pacific Bell and Offer DSL services to uh, to households throughout much of California. So we would trunk from different toll areas throughout the state and interconnect these large ATM aggregation circuits. and uh, And Sonic began at that point running an open network and providing those services to smaller regional ISPs all around the state of California. And so that those regional service providers really helped us attain scale You'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: And so then what's the what's the era beyond the DSL era where we're moving are we moving completely away from copper at this point?
1: No, so so DSL is delivered over a copper pair.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, you know, it's uh, it's higher frequency, right? You've got lower frequency that carries voice, and then the higher frequencies of the spectrum. Over that copper line, deliver an asymmetric digital subscriber line that might deliver, you know in that era, it was you know one and a half megabits to six megabits of of connection to your ISP. who would then connect that to the internet? and um, uh, and this was you know during this era, uh, Pacific Bell internet launched. and so suddenly, you know for for regulatory reasons, um, the telephone company itself could get into the internet access business. Cable companies were beginning to deliver you know data over cable and uh, And this is a chaotic and it was a time of a lot of growth for a lot of internet access companies. and um, uh, but this is still delivered over copper. and um, and this is it's an interesting um, history here for me because regulation drives the business models and opportunities of each era. And so if you think about the era from 1992 to the year 2000, you had a um, Republican Congress, you had a Democratic president, Bill Clinton. And in 1996, we had this bipartisan passage uh, with the, the Congress uh, on the one side, the President on the other, this bipartisan passage of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. The 96 Act created a framework for the unbundling of last mile copper. So telephone lines were a monopoly. Every household needed a telephone line and telephone lines were provided on a rate of return. In other words, whatever it cost the local phone company to build these wires to all the houses eventually they would, we would uh, make back those dollars and a defined profit margin uh, through the monthly service fee that they charge for basic telephone service. And so each year you know, your local telephone incumbent would go to the regulator and say well here's what we spent building and maintaining the copper network Um, that we're providing services over and so as a result next year we'd like to charge ten dollars and 85 cents a month for a phone line and uh, so if you think back a little earlier long distance had been a monopoly you had AT&T and calling across the country was very very expensive and congress uh, and the FCC deregulated um, long distance access And that resulted in the launch of companies like Sprint and MCI and dialing 1010-321 to choose your carrier or whatever before a phone call. So what was recognized was that competitive access and and the the breaking of this monopolization created innovation in the long-distance telecommunications arena. What the 1996 Telecommunications Act did was open the door in both directions. Companies that wanted to provide local services, and that would include telephone service, fax lines, DSL lines, and broadband access, would have access to these copper wires that had been paid for by consumers under this regulated rate of return monopoly regime. And then once local telephone companies had demonstrably opened their copper last mile networks to competitive local exchange carriers, then those local phone companies could get into the long distance business. And that was the, the, the carrot at the other end. And, uh, and, and local phone companies, they were barred by regulation from providing long distance. So you had Pacific Bell providing your phone line as a regulated monopoly and then you had long-distance services. You'd choose your carrier, and there was, AT- there was a AT&T and MCI and Sprint and a hundred others that we haven't heard of. And Pacific Bell saw this unregulated Wild West of long-distance services as an opportunity. And uh, so there was two sides of this equation. You know, One was to create competition in local services that that were monopolized, and there wasn't as much innovation as we'd like to see. And, uh, and unregulated access to to uh, long distance services. And uh, so kind of the third kind of big thing for for Sonic, and, and I think a lot of our peers, uh, was becoming a telephone company, becoming a competitive local exchange carrier, and deploying our own DSLAMs, our own DSL access multiplexers, our own equipment to deliver local and long distance phone service. And all the services that go along with that, like caller ID and voicemail, and you know all the star code things that you dial, and and you know uh, three digit dialing, you know calling 811 for U.S. Underground Service Alert and 911 for emergencies. And so we became a competitive local exchange carrier in 2006, and that really uh, drove a, a lot of growth for us, an opportunity to, to innovate. And, um, you know, this is a time when, um, at that point, the DSL services available from local phone companies and ISPs that were using the local phone company DSLAMs kind of, at that time, it was like 6 megabit was the top speed, and typically there'd be three speeds and three different price points. And um, so, you know, we were selling one and a half megabit service for, it was pretty expensive, I think it was $58 a month. And then for $5 more, you'd go twice the speed, and for $5 more, you'd go twice the speed again, so you'd have a three and a six megabit offering. And uh, so, this next regulatory era from 2000 through 2008, you have George Bush in the White House. The appointees to the FCC um, are um, uh, 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 Kevin Martin. And um, uh, the FCC at that time, the regulatory philosophy was to deregulate. And, And what they were attempting to spur was, you know, investment by incumbents in their networks. And they were furthering, um, a philosophy of intermodal competition. In other words, cable is going to compete with telco and broadband over power line. I don't think any of us subscribe to that today. And wireless and satellite. And that'll be enough competition for consumers to choose from. And, uh, you know, we, you know, obviously from from our perspective as a competitive service provider, um, We don't think that that number of choices is enough. And and what we've ended up with today um, is a duopoly in most markets. And and really because of the capabilities of the coaxial technology for faster services in many locations across the U.S., a monopoly. And that is the outcome of regulatory decision making in the early 2000s by uh, Michael Powell, and Kevin Martin, uh, the, the chairs of the FCC during during that era. And uh, so through a series of regulatory decisions, it became clear to us that uh, if we were going to continue to service the public, if we we're gonna provide services, uh, we needed to move up the food chain from a regulatory perspective and make further investments in facilities. And uh, so the 1986 Telecommunications Act created this framework for co-location of equipment, DSLAMs and voice equipment, um, and unbundling of the base copper wires. What this would allow is competitive service providers, um, competitive local exchange carriers, telecommunications providers, to invest in the equipment to improve the services that were delivered and to differentiate them and uh, but there's an interesting moment here where we uh we launched those services in 2008 and we'd been selling you know resold access to you know i think what was then sbc through kind of reconsolidation and rebranding We had access to their DSLAMs, and we had been selling for, at that point, a decade a set of services that were one and a half, three, and six megabit, and that cost basically $5 more for Mm. each doubling in speed. And so we built a new network, and we did our first co-location, and uh, and we launched services, and we did it using a newer DSL technology, ADSL 2+ which supported um, the technology supports up to 24 megabits. And so we took the three speeds that we had 1.5, three and six. And we said, well, let's create a 12 megabit tier and charge $5 a month more for that. And an 18 megabit tier and charge $5 a month more for that. And we don't think, you know, um, you know, we, we think that'll be the, the right go to market, the right plan. And what we found was that it didn't work um, you know we were always growing, but there was no inflection and um, you know some people who wanted more speed subscribed to the faster services, um, but it wasn 't innovative and um, and I you know historically, I grew up quite literally in the telecommunications and internet access market of the United States, a market that began with you know dial-up access and then paying a little extra for 56k modem access and paying hourly for, for, for uh, services to DSL, where the incumbent had created these three tiers and priced them differently. And so I thought, well, that's how you should sell Internet. It goes faster, you should charge more, right? It's, that delivers more value, and it makes a whole lot of sense. And that makes sense when you buy something offline. Um, you know, if you go and buy a, a, a single hamburger, you, you, you pay one price. And if you buy a you know double cheeseburger, you're going to pay more. And that is capitalism and, and correct and appropriate. But the reality there is there's more cow there. Whereas if we're just limiting the DSLAM or router to three megabits instead of 18, that's literally us just logging in and changing a setting. The underlying infrastructure, the the wires that go to the premise that we rent each month, the DSLAM in the central office that, that delivers the ADSL 2+, and the modem in the home, all of those can go any speed. And there's some limits based on distance and some practical limits, but what we did was launch a service based on the segmentation and segmentation of price model that was common in the U.S., And this is a model that really, frankly, was the outcome of a failed market, a market that became a duopoly of, you know, cable versus telco. And cable would go a little faster, and they'd have three or four different tiers of speed. And then telco would go a little faster, and they would have a few different tiers of speed. Cable would upgrade their network a little. Telco would upgrade their network a little. And it was really this glacial pace. of of duopoly innovation with these two companies sort of looking across the aisle so to speak how fast is their network Um, what's the technology they can and will deploy how will they invest What are the return obligations in those investments and uh, and then what are the price signals that they're sending in the marketplace and what's our churn and how many customers are we losing and um, so we launched a set of you know what we hoped would be innovative competitive services emulating a business model that was designed to maximize the wallet share in a duopoly environment. And uh, and the, the result was, you know, kind of uninteresting. And, uh, you know, we're, we're focused on the technology. Um, we're focused on the product and the, the customer service. and uh, And we just had not figured out the business model. And I think given the sort of deregulatory environment in the United States um, from 2000 to 2008 and the you know by and large failure of you know the bankruptcies of the majority of competitive carriers that launched in the late 90s all kinda of went bankrupt in 2001-2002 when they had this big dot-com crash and uh, and we just didn't have domestically a good framework for what competitive access should look like and um, so I started reading about competitive service providers in Europe. And Europe adopted a telecommunications regulatory framework that emulated the U.S. model of taking state-owned or privately-owned monopoly telecommunications carriers who had operated on a rate-of-return basis, built last-mile unique last mile, essential infrastructure, and, uh, and required those incumbents to unbundle it and create a competitive framework and opportunity. And then the European regulators stuck with this, whereas in the U.S. we passed the 1996 Act, and then ever since then, up until the present moment, it has been an effort to unwind that by incumbent monopolists. And, and there was some success in that in, um, in a number of decisions. There's a fiber forbearance decision. Uh, if the incumbents built fiber to within a certain distance of the home, they had no unbundling obligation. Uh, this is really what led to um, the Uverse product. Uh, and uh, I remember a threat by the you know, then CEO of SBC that you know, they would not invest in this infrastructure if they didn't receive regulatory relief around wholesaling obligations. Um, so the idea was deregulate to spur investment, and, and to some degree, it's worked. Cable operators have uh, taken a lot of the telecommunications market from telephone companies. Telephone companies are deploying networks to take customers back. You think about companies like Verizon building the FiOS network. And uh, but I think where we've ended up is, you know, by and large, this duopoly environment, and Americans. Pay far too much for the internet access that they have, and they have few choices, which leads to uh, the companies who know that they are virtually a monopoly or oligopoly at best making decisions about how traffic would be treated. And you think about the outcomes of, you know, the neutrality. Well, you know, if you had 20 providers to choose from, we wouldn't need to regulate net neutrality because the market would take care of that. Similarly, with privacy. Um, and um, you know, service providers who um, engage in uh, turning their customers into their product, and uh, the need for privacy regulations. Well, if you had twenty service providers, well, so long as there's transparency about privacy practices, you probably wouldn't need much in the way of privacy regulation because consumers would choose in the marketplace the, the product that met their goals around privacy. And uh, so, Europe, on the other hand, adopted a framework that looked like the U.S. 1996 Act, uh, ratified it across the member nations, and implemented across the member nations in Europe at a later era than the U.S. And uh, and then stuck with it. And so, you know, if you are in um, uh, the U.K. or France. Today, you have many service writers to choose from, and the result has been lower prices and more product and service innovation. And uh, so I started reading about the, the European market place and, and what, you know, how competitive it was and what the prices were, and critically, what the products were that were delivered. And what I realized was that in an environment where your underlying cost structure is the copper wires that go to the premise, Um, And the copper wires can carry what they will. That is data and voice and data at whatever speed can be carried based on the distance. That the right model isn't five different speed tiers for five different prices. It is to deliver as much as can be carried over it in data and voice. Unlimited use, uh, unlimited local calling, unlimited nationwide calling, all of the voice features, all the things that, you know, caller ID today, many local phone companies charge over $9 a month for caller ID. And that just doesn't make any sense. Voicemail, people are paying 6 or $7 for voicemail service, which probably made sense, you know, 15 years ago when that was uh, really expensive technology. But today that's literally a, a small Linux server. And uh, or an array of them, and uh, so in um, uh, in the late 2000s, we really reinvented the product, and we launched our fusion broadband and phone service, or initially based on ADSL2+ plus technology, and we included data as fast as it would go, uh, and. Uh, unlimited phone service, unlimited local calling, unlimited nationwide calling. Eventually, we added unlimited global calling, so our customers can call fixed lines in over 60 countries and, and pay nothing per minute for it, uh, and nothing per month. It's part of the bundled service. And uh, and that that recognition that we'd been competing in a Failed competitive marketplace, and we were executing business models that were based on that based on duopoly um, was really a, another light bulb moment for us. and uh, And we quickly kind of recast all the products, de-tiered them, flattened all the pricing, and uh, and and launched a product that was you know as fast as it would go and unlimited use. And uh, this is kind of the third of four eras. Of the company, and, and during this time, we continued to operate an open network. Uh, we had about um, we had about 75 service providers that used our open incumbent DSL aggregation platform, and um, and we carried about 10 of those over. Uh, you know, the 10 that were really still serving the markets that we deployed in and still growing. Um, and we deployed our own equipment into nearly 200 uh, central offices in California, Greater Los Angeles, and Orange County, Sacramento, the Greater San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, and so that that was really kind of the the third major evolution of what we what we've done.
0: So what is what is the fourth era then?
1: So I, I like you sort of raised to the leading pause there. <laughs> um, the uh, So what's next is the last mile, right? The challenge is that copper doesn't go fast enough. And, you know, we have taken – we as an industry, right, cable has taken a coaxial plant that was CATV, community antenna television, (laughs) that was designed to distribute – a a signal from a mountaintop that could see a large city down into the valley and allow many households to share an antenna Um, telephone carriers have taken twisted pair technologies that were designed to deliver a dial tone and voice communications um, to a a central office and we've overlaid you know higher frequency signals and deployed fiber deeper into the network and um, Uh, deployed faster and faster, better and better data technologies to deliver uh, internet access, fundamentally, Um, but copper only goes so far, um, so to speak. And the reality of the DSL technologies today, um, you know, today we deliver VDSL2, which is um, uh, kind of the most broadly deployed high-speed DSL service. And it can deliver um, 50 to 100 megabits of internet access, but you've got to be pretty close to the central office to, to get that. And there are some newer technologies, um, uh, Gdot Fast, uh, that could deliver um, you know hundreds of megabits and and uh, and with some pair bonding over a gigabit, but on the order of hundreds of yards. So this is a an an in-building, you think of an apartment building or an apartment complex, it's a distribution technology that allows the last hundreds of meters to be faster. The The challenge is when you've got to go two miles to reach a home, twisted pair, just there's limits to the capabilities. So the solution is to deploy a new network, and the challenge is how do you do that competitively, how do you fund that and build that? And for us, what that um, has been, uh, become is basically to follow the roadmap of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. So the Act is intended as a competitive um, environment that allows for access to the old wires on a shared basis. But, and, and that is an essential component because. Whether you're a cable company or a phone company or a new market entrant, you don't suddenly have thousands of fiber-connected customers. You begin with copper-connected customers in a community, and then you build a fiber network when there is financial viability and market demand, and then you migrate those customers from copper to fiber. And so Sonic's business model and approach has been to deploy um, competitively differentiated copper services so um, unlimited use um, the right policies and practices good customer service fast technology like pair bonding to merge two lines together VDSL 2 for folks that are close to offices so deliver a service which is high performance differentiated um, and accumulate customers in a market and then build a new fiber optic network and migrate those customers to that optical network. And uh, so the really fourth major story of the company has been the process of learning how to build outside plant last mile fiber to the premise. And that brings all the way from, from the internet and content delivery networks and peering and transit through um, an optical network uh, to access equipment that, brings fiber optic cable all the way to the home the side of the house where then it's converted to gigabit ethernet and delivered to the to the consumer
0: so what you've described in the course of this conversation is just always being nimble enough to not only stay one step ahead of the the competition but also to evolve with the technology with always keeping your your eye on like, we just want to deliver the most stuff over, over whatever the infrastructure is that we can provide it on. Um, Does that sound like a a decent summation of, of uh, Sonic's 25 years?
1: Yes. And, you know, consumers are hungry for access to all the amazing things that are on the internet, like all the great stuff that's happening, you know, whether it's streaming or shopping or finding a job or learning something or you know, meeting your spouse. All these amazing applications are what drive, you know, people's desire to use this. And then as an industry, carriers, uh, whether it's cable or telco incumbents or competitive carriers, we all have to innovate in the technology, um, in the deployment of infrastructure to deliver faster and faster services. And, And this is, it's an amazing competitive story. And and I'll I'll also say, you know, Sonic is not unique in this story. I think about these eras of dial-up and DSL resale and and becoming a competitive phone company and deploying our own equipment and building Last Mile. And there are companies like Sonic that have uh, done that arc from, you know, 1994 uh, to the present in other markets. So, um, you know, we're uh, a regional Uh, success story in California, but there's companies um, in Oregon, GorgeNet, uh, in Missouri, Socket Internet, um, that have a similar, similar story. And uh, and this is an interesting one because I think consumers think of cable and they hate cable, right? Cable companies are some of the most hated companies in America. And um, the, there's this awful moment where you're moving into a new place, and you say, "I got to call the cable company, get internet, uh, pay whatever they charge, because I need internet. <laughs> Internet's essential." And um, uh, and I think that that is um, a real opportunity. And uh, the '96 Act and 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 the Republican Congress's um, concepts around that framework for. Uh, competitive deployment um, and uh, the the innovation and investment in last mile infrastructure, uh, as a result of that, is uh, is transformative, and uh, and you know we're thrilled to have uh, had some success running along that route. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax-certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: All right, so final question at the risk of um, asking you to literally... Uh, predict the future, but how do you see being the ISP industry or, or delivering this sort of data and connectivity uh, over the next 25 years?
1: Well, you know, my my role is to think about the future. How do we position ourselves for that? What will the future be? And so I spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, you know, where is this going? Well, fundamentally, people love the Internet, and there's all this wonderful stuff there, and, and that's just going to get better and better and more and more integrated with our lives and more and more seamless. Um, there's all these issues around security and privacy and so on that that, that fall from that. But in the big picture, um, it's just getting faster, better, and more interconnected. And I have a lot – I'm an optimist. I have a lot of hope for what that means with regards to education and equity and, and – um, The development of communities here and uh, and nations elsewhere, and um, but what will it be? You know, what will be the access technology? I mean, clearly we spend a lot of time on wireless devices today, and uh, if you got the new iOS, it tells you your screen time if you're an iPhone user, and uh, you know many folks are spending more hours per day in front of a handheld device than they are in front of a desktop today. And those are supplanting, you know, laptops, the way laptops supplanted desktops. But so, so the, the future technologies are wireless in a cellular context. And, uh, uh, you know, today, if that's LTE, uh, long-term evolution today, uh, LTE advanced and future 5G technologies, that is an entire ecosystem of innovation and deployment. And uh, and we'll see more and more consumers connecting, particularly the devices that you wear and carry and drive, and devices that move, uh, will clearly be connected to those networks in faster, better ways into the future. Um, the other uh, is satellite and and particularly low Earth orbit, um, and uh, you know projects like the the SpaceX Starlink product, the OneWeb product. Uh, where they will launch like literally thousands and and together tens of thousands of small satellites uh, that orbit. And uh, and there's some interesting outcomes of that. Um, You know, one is latency. Uh, You can get, from a latency perspective, if you go up to outer space and then from satellite to satellite through a vacuum uh, around the globe and then back down to Earth, you can get there faster uh, as a piece of data than you can through a glass fiber optic cable. So this has some applications, um, high frequency trading and market arbitrage as you think about New York to London, so to speak. Um, But the other thing that's interesting is ubiquitous availability on the entire face of the globe, including all the wet bits. And so, uh, you know, this will really mean something for airplanes and shipping and cruise ships and so on. Uh, it also means a lot for rural places, you know, if if, if uh, you think about a constellation of satellites like this, it covers, um, you know, ultra sparsely populated portions of Australia or Africa, just as well as it covers New York City. And uh, so as you think about the, the rural and under and unconnected parts of the world, um, it will become possible for all of those to be connected. Now. All of these things, particularly as you think about mobile and 5G, there is a foundation of fiber, right? The mobile tower, the, the idea with 5G in particular millimeter wave is that, you know, where you had two towers in a city in 3G and you might have, you know, 25 towers in an LTE environment, you might have 2,000 towers in a 5G environment. They might be on on streetlights at every corner. And, uh, and all those points uh, need fiber to backhaul them. And, uh, and then, you know, there's a big marketplace question of um, if consumers, and, and in, my, in my home, I think I have like almost 40 connected devices, right? It's smoke detectors and thermostats and security cameras and, and televisions and Rokus and laptops and tablets. Um, and they all speak Wi-Fi. And, and they've all had Wi-Fi chipsets in them. There's, you know, literally billions of Wi-Fi chipsets deployed. So in the home, um, Wi-Fi is the critical uh, local area networking technology. And then the question is, is wireless from the home to the Internet uh, the right technology, or is fiber? And uh, you know, clearly we're investing in fiber to the home and fiber to the home has some real advantages in performance and reliability, um, and it's ready today. Um, whereas, you know, wireless technologies that serve as a wireline replacement are uh, nascent today and unproven. And, uh, and I think they, they will have real applications, um, but where it is possible and feasible to build fiber all the way to the premise, um, that will continue to be the, the strongest solution for uplinking all the devices, both wired and wireless, that, that are in that premise, home or a business. And uh, so we're really, really aggressively focused on um, raising uh, uh, raising debt, building infrastructure, um, uh, investing in the communities that we serve, Uh, building fiber all the way to the homes and businesses and, you know, critically recruiting customers. And and I think that, you know, there was an era when people made a choice between lots of different service providers and folks have kind of forgotten that that was even possible. And uh, so it's like moving to a new place, got to call the cable company. Um, And, uh, and we need to continue to raise awareness uh, in the public that, you know there there may be an alternative in their location. And whether it's socket internet in in Missouri or gorge net in in Hood River, Oregon, or Sonic uh, in uh, uh, in Berkeley or San Francisco or Los Angeles, um, you know consumers need to look at the alternatives. And so you know that's another big part of our struggle now is on the one hand, building it, on the other hand, selling it and uh, and making sure everybody knows that they should look at those products and and we continue to have a disruptive approach in in pricing and business model you know it's a unlimited symmetric gigabit and you know it's inexpensive and you know so all those components too
0: uh well dane thank you so much for not only telling the story of of sonic and how it's evolved with bit the times and the technology but um, in a very large part, like, basically giving us uh, a comprehensive history of connectivity and the ISP industry and, and just basically um, how we all uh, get this data that is so crucial and, uh, to, to modern life. Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's something that, you know, consumers love the Internet. And they don't love the companies they have to use to get there. And maybe they don't understand why we've ended up where we are. And it really is the, the outcome of um, not just business and technology, but also regulation. And, um, you know, I talked about sort of the deregulatory efforts. Um, there is a petition before the FCC today uh, to unwind uh, most of the remaining critical elements of the 96 Act. And uh, large incumbents uh, through their trade association are um, are arguing that uh, that you know these components aren't useful or aren't necessary, and you know critically aren't used to serve residential consumers and um, you know that's clearly not the case and um, so you know, this is uh, an ongoing battle, not just in the marketplace and, and not just about deployment, but also about regulation. And um, you know, you know, this is something that we certainly encourage consumers. You know, if you want competitive deployment of fiber to the home, uh, and you want to see, you know, more than just one or two choices of access, file comments. Um, this proceeding is going on for a few more months. Uh, and there's a, uh, a website, savecompetition.com, and consumers can learn about what's going on from a regulatory perspective and, uh, and can file comments and support there. If you like what
0: you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened, from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks.